In the stare-down between Chinese protesters and their government over COVID restrictions, Beijing blinks. Sri Lanka and the role artists played in the downfall of the Rajapaksa clan. Plus, the Australian government and some major media players say it's time to drop the case against Julian Assange. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we provide explanatory journalism about journalism and the global news media. The way China's vice premier, Sun Chunlan, put it, the country is entering a new stage in its fight against COVID-19. The underlying message from Beijing to its people is, we are listening. The government has started lifting lockdowns in some major cities, including Shanghai. Sun disclosed the new policy a week after unrest broke out in multiple locations. Protesters demanding a loosening of restrictions and in some cases calling for the downfall of President Xi Jinping. It all began when videos went viral of a fire at an apartment block in Urumqi, a city that is under lockdown. Ten people confined to their flats failed to make it out alive. Social media got lit up by citizens tired of the impact the pandemic continues to have on life in China. Politically, the government's predicament is that President Xi has made the zero-COVID strategy his signature policy. To criticize it is to criticize the president, which puts journalists and the state-controlled news outlets that they work for in a tough spot. Our starting point this week is Urumqi. If this wave of demonstrations in cities like Wuhan, Shanghai, even Beijing leads to meaningful, lasting changes to some of the toughest COVID restrictions anywhere, the city of Urumqi will be remembered for the fire that lit the fuse. Urumqi is in northwestern China. It was 100 days into its latest government-enforced lockdown when an apartment building there went up in flames. With COVID barriers outside the structure appearing to hamper rescue efforts, keeping fire hoses at a distance, videos were posted online showing how 10 people failed to make it out alive. Chinese citizens then took to the streets. Although this happened in a distant city um, and the fire itself was actually not that big, uh, a lot of Chinese people watching this, many of them are locked in or have been locked into their apartments as part of COVID lockdowns. And I think there's a lot of people watching this fire happening and wondering if they might be next. Uh, and so that brought home to them um, just how serious this, uh, this COVID policies can be. The video spread like wildfire. Even, even though there is a firewall in China and there is censorship, a lot of the young Chinese people nowadays are tech savvy, so they use VPN to go over the Great Firewall. On Chinese Twitter, now there's tons of videos of different protest sites occurring in China. Protests of 100 to 200 people may not be concerning, but when the, the video is spread across the internet and goes viral, it has a multiplier effect. China, a country of 1.4 billion, claims to have lost just over 5,000 people to COVID. While scientists outside the country doubt the official numbers are accurate, they are likely many times higher than the authorities admit. They do accept that the harsh measures, extended lockdowns, heavily policed, have been effective. But the patience of citizens has worn thin. 
They're tired of the QR codes they are still required to produce on their phones in order to avoid taking another mandatory COVID test or to just get around. Spare a thought, however, for journalists at state-controlled news outlets. They've been lauding President Xi Jinping and his approach to COVID. From the outset, they have compared the pandemic numbers in China to more liberal countries like the U.S., where they have been exponentially higher. In central China's Hubei province, the former epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak, about 68,000 cases have been reported since the beginning of the outbreak in America. There are about that many cases in a single day. How do they tell the story of these demonstrations, though? knowing that their editors and the censors will only let them go so far. I feel bad for state media workers because there's really no way to sugarcoat the dire reality that people are fed up with zero COVID. They're basically pretending it's not happening. And I think they are going to come up with a very sinister interpretation of what happened. Some hostile international forces must be at play. The protesters are actually puppets uh, of the United States, of CIA. There's no evidence of that, but I think that's something we need to be on the watch out for. What the censorship does is it creates a digital divide and, and an age divide for an older generation, people who are not tech savvy. If their main source of news is coming from the state media, they might not even be aware there's protests going on all across China. But young people use Western social media. They're able to see this happening live. So some people are very aware and some people are completely oblivious. China has absolute discretion in deciding how it wants to impose censorship on things that they consider not constructive. And the political slogans expressed in the course of the protests, if you think they are good for Chinese stability, then you talk about it. If you don't think they are good for China's stability, you do not want to talk about it. Different countries have different ways of dealing with sensitive issues, and we refuse to be distracted by noises. And China's undistracted media outlets have dutifully complied. Ignoring the protests and focusing on other stories, such as the improvements China has made to its transport system, along with President Xi's numerous other accomplishments. CGTN, a news channel that broadcasts in English, took a similar approach. When called out on Twitter about that, the network hid those replies and just carried on, as though there was no story worth reporting from the streets. Coverage in the international media comes up short in other ways. So it's really unprecedented that we're seeing such a large crowd of people here. Taking the story of nationwide protests, which are rare in China, and blowing it out of proportion. Yeah, you wonder whether you're going to have another Tiananmen Square type of moment sometime yeah. soon. And drawing a blatantly false equivalence between 2022 and a few thousand demonstrators, with some of them calling for Xi Jinping to go, and the existential threat communist rulers faced in 1989, when a million people turned out to back the Tiananmen Square protests, demanding regime change in Beijing.
reporting that we see in the Western media um, versus what Chinese people's real concerns are. There's a real disconnect. U.S. and U.S. allies media has tried, always tried to paint China in the worst possible light. And all they're going for is for the regime change angle. Eyes around the world, people are looking, well, maybe that Western system, that American system, that democratic system is better. Right now, there is very little chance of regime change in China in the foreseeable future. The Western media or international media should have told a better story, a fairer and more objective story. Because when we look at this pandemic, the fact that the United States has lost more than one million people, that number is shocking. This is purely the responsibility of the U.S. government. Voices of dissent in China, the protesters who forced the authorities to loosen the lockdowns, at least temporarily, assume they are being watched online and on the streets. No government is better equipped with surveillance technology. Censors take down content the authorities would disapprove of, although they struggled to keep up when the protests broke out. Hundreds of millions of cameras keep an eye on public spaces using facial recognition software that can even identify citizens wearing protective masks. So it's watch what you say, post, or dare to put on a protest sign. Which is why demonstrators have been carrying blank signs. When it comes to freedom of expression in China, that says it all. That's really the ultimate rebellion against China's censorship, which has been much more dramatic and all-encompassing under Xi Jinping's rule uh, for 10 years. So if you take all my words away from me, I literally have nothing to say, just a blank piece of paper. It's an extremely creative and smart way to show people's dissatisfaction with Chinese censorship policy. China has by far the world's most uh, comprehensive and sophisticated state surveillance system. I mean, there are more than 400 million cameras in the country. The government is able to essentially access almost any of the more than 1 billion smartphones there are. The fact that protesters still went out, I think, is a testament both to the levels of frustration people feel and also, of course, the, the, the bravery in expressing it. There are new developments in the U.S. extradition case against Julian Assange of WikiLeaks. Five major international news outlets have sent an open letter to Washington calling for the case to be closed. Flo Phillips is here with the latest. Richard, it was 12 years ago this week that Julian Assange collaborated with five European and American newspapers to publish so-called Cablegate. Material leaked to WikiLeaks by the then American soldier Chelsea Manning that exposed the inner workings of US diplomacy around the world. Now, those same media outlets have sent a message to the US government. Written by The Guardian, The New York Times, Le Monde, Der Spiegel and El Pais, the open letter says Assange's indictment under an archaic law, the Espionage Act of 1917, sets a, quote, dangerous precedent and threatens to undermine freedom of the press. For those who've been tracking this case, the coordinated message from the papers could seem like too little too late. Some of these same outlets gave scant coverage to the prior stages of Assange's legal battle. 
The Biden White House's reaction to the letter stuck to the line laid down by previous U.S. administrations. That those leaks, those revelations in the public sphere were damaging to U.S. national security. The other government to watch in this story is in the land of Assange's birth, Australia, now led by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. I have raised this personally uh, with uh, representatives uh, of uh, the United States government. And it is time that this matter be brought to a close. Albanese has said that kind of thing before, but only as opposition leader. It was his first mention of the case since taking power about six months ago. Between Assange's time claiming asylum at the Ecuadorian embassy in London and more than three years behind bars in a British maximum security prison, this legal case has lasted more than a decade. If extradited to the US, he faces a maximum sentence of 175 years. Thanks, Flo. It has been nearly five months now since protests in Sri Lanka forced President Gotabaya Rajapaksa out of office. With him went many members of his family, all of whom were in government. The political unrest featured memes, viral videos, songs, dances, cartoons, and caricatures, all mocking the Rajapaksas. There is a history of art playing a role during turbulent times in Sri Lanka, and that has persisted through nearly three decades of civil war, the Easter bombings of 2019, and the demonstrations that began this past April. The art conveyed what the mainstream media could not or would not say. By openly taking on the ruling family, it reinforced the message coming from the streets that Sri Lankans were done with the Rajapaksas and the corruption that came with them. The Listening Post's Minakshi Ravi now on protest art that is still doing the rounds in Sri Lanka. This was a charged moment for Sri Lanka. May 2022, and hundreds of thousands of people protesting a system they said was rotten denouncing a government they accused of bleeding the country dry. At the heart of the protests, political art, with a unique signature, part visual, part musical. Sri Lanka had witnessed protests before, but these were nationwide, and there was no stopping them until the departure in July of President Kota Bay Rajapaksa, and with him, an entire political dynasty. I have been part of Sri Lankan protests for some time now and this was the first time in which art created so many spaces for people to come and interact in that expression. So in a way it was becoming a community expression, uh, you know, the collective expression of a group of people. A lot of the art really promoted um, a critique of the politics of the country and in ways that people were, please understand, very fearful. This was a president who was nicknamed the Terminator by his own family. This was a president who has allegations of crimes against humanity and war crimes. So this was a much feared family and the protest provided an opportunity for artists of all shapes, sizes and colors from all over the country to articulate a critique of this family and the militarization through artistic production. Five men, all of them Rajapaksas, including President Gotabaya Rajapaksa and his brother Mahinda, the Prime Minister. All of them in government when the protests began, all accused of corruption, members of a family notorious for clamping down on freedom of the press, caricatured by artist Dilshan Fernando 
as mythical demons. Scenes from the protests rendered in the style of Renaissance paintings by multimedia artist Muvindu Binoy. A photo of an unknown Sri Lankan woman with her baby during the protests. This was an image that went viral. The name of the photographer is still not known. And then this mural, located at what became the heart of the protests in the city of Colombo, a space for activism and art called Gota Gogama, which translates into the catchphrase and hashtag of the uprisings, Gota, go home. Yeah, it was, it was a wonderful few days actually working on that mural. We all came together to say what we want to see and who we want our leaders to be and who we want to represent the voices of the people going forward, right? And the voices of, you know, marginalized communities coming first. Give them something of themselves to remember as well as give society something to remember. So the whole idea is, you know, to create beauty during times of strife. And that's quite extraordinary for a number of reasons in terms of the identity of the producers, the manner in which the mural depicted uh, women and, 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 and feminism as central and core to the protest. There are elements of justice, of equality, of equity, of, of, of a feminist agenda, uh, of a, a multi-ethnic perspective. So there's a lot of things happening in that mural. You don't find the depiction of that kind of inter-religious identity uh, in a mural in the middle of Colombo at a time when you thought that the Rajapaksas were in power. The protests and the art at the centre of it all put news outlets on the spot. The country's media has long been intimidated and largely tamed by the state. A civil war that lasted nearly 30 years has left scars on Sri Lankan journalism. Then, when Gotabai Rajapaksa came into office in 2019, his reputation for control, through methods that were often brutal, made a media industry already in a crouch cower further. Now, journalists carefully weighed the question, was it safe to deviate from the officially approved line? The narratives that cast the protesters as the villains of the piece? The typical Rajpaksa haters, the liberals, the haters of the conservative establishment, the guys who support ISIS. Protesters argued their way into the studios of the state-owned Rupavahini Corporation and went on air to say this. As more and more demonstrators flooded the streets, putting their livelihoods and sometimes their lives on the line, mainstream media was painted, or rather animated, as part of an enemy establishment. The man who created the art in this music video is Randy Chris Pereira. It kind of helped to really tell what's, what was actually going on because a lot of people do depend on only the mainstream media. At that time, there were a lot of suppression and a lot of uh, media institutions. They would kind of twist the things and paint us in a very derogatory way. So we were getting attacked from all, all angles. So that's what I was depicting out there. These types of arts and video clips which are easily shareable on WhatsApp, that you can post on Facebook and Twitter, etc. They vocalize sentiments that you are not sometimes able to vocalize yourself. So sometimes art can even give voice to things that you know that are inside you but are unable to express. The protest 
allow the space physically offline, but also fundamentally online on social media for the democratization of artistic production and artistic appreciation. That was unprecedented in terms of the volume of the output, the pace of the output, and the engagement with the output in any way you want to measure it. I've never seen anything like it. So that's quite unique. But what's not unique is art being part of a political struggle in the country. One of Sri Lanka's most prominent political artists, Chandragupta Tenuvara, has created a genre of work called barrelism. He uses steel barrels, the kind seen at army checkpoints, to depict the normalization of an increasingly militarized society. Painter and archaeologist Jagat Veerasinghe is motivated by the fractures in Sri Lankan society. His work grapples with notions of nationhood, identity, religion and confrontation. And Anoma Vijayvardhana has dwelt on matters relating to the environment in her politically conscious art. The Sri Lankan tradition of art in times of turmoil was unmissable on the streets during the protests. Possibly the surest indication of the impact of the art was the fact that so much of it got torn down by the authorities. We have no idea where the mural really went or who dismantled this. I mean, art has the power to change people's minds, lives, and they start to think for the first time in their lives, probably. And people who think are harder to control. So it's pretty obvious to know why it was targeted so much. The autocrat's worst nightmare is the loss of the control over how he is depicted. Because here was ribald criticism, open criticism. And obviously the authorities went after the protests and the protesters in the main, but also the art, because it was so powerful. It captivated the imagination. It communicated the politics. It mobilized the community, not just to specific locations, but the entirety of the country and even beyond, like myself in the diaspora, so it was local, it was global, and it was everything, everything that the government wanted to clamp down on. What's happening in Sri Lanka at the moment is the old order is dying and the new is yet to be born. And I think in that phase of transition, we need a lot of creativity, we need a lot of reflection, and the role that artists can play in that is actually by creating those spaces, those messages, those creative works that could give people the space to ask the right questions so that they can find some solutions for these systemic problems we are trying to get, uh, grapple with. And finally, we've just about reached half-time at World Cup 2022 in Qatar, brought to you as it has been since 1930 by FIFA. The International Football Organization got its start in Paris back in 1904, working with amateur players. Seventy years later, it was transformed when a Brazilian businessman, João Havalange, turned FIFA into a far more lucrative global business venture, selling television rights and sponsorships to the highest bidder and making occasional backroom deals involving some big brown envelopes. For those who want to know more about FIFA and its penchant for impropriety, Foul, the secret world of FIFA, really set the standard for reporting on the organization. 
Written in 2006, its author, Andrew Jennings, was given a lifetime ban from all FIFA press conferences, a red card of sorts. The Lords of Soccer is a podcast on iHeartRadio, a streaming platform. This clash of nations generates $4.5 billion in revenue and attracts more than 2 billion eyeballs. But behind the excitement and spectacle lurks an ugly truth. The podcast gets into how, for decades, greed, corruption, racism, and sexism have tainted global football and the World Cup tournament. FIFA Uncovered is a four-part documentary series on Netflix. Being a member of FIFA is like being in the secret garden. There's an unspoken code. You can do whatever you want. The series also gets into the organization's history. Contributors to FIFA Uncovered include The Guardian's investigations correspondent, David Kahn, and New York Times journalist Ken Bessinger, whose books The Fall of the House of FIFA and Red Card provide some detailed history and focus on corruption. On Twitter, two accounts worth following are Joey Durso, investigative reporter at The Athletic, and football podcast host Musa Okwanga. Those are just some of the voices on FIFA and the World Cup that are on the ball. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.